Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 787th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Today on our podcast, we have someone who teaches an effective way to build Hugel Culture Gardens. We're talking with Paul Wheaton about horticultural techniques. Paul Wheaton is an author, producer, certified advanced master gardener, and is the lead mad scientist of Wheaton Labs and Permies.com. After a successful career as a software engineer in aerospace, Paul became obsessed with everything permaculture. He has created hundreds of videos and podcasts and written dozens of articles and several books. Welcome to the show today, Paul. Are you ready to rock? I'm ready to rock, complete with fresh rocks. <laughs> love Ed, love the enthusiasm. So I shared a bit about you. Can you fill in the blanks for us and share more about the path you took to get where you're at today? I would say that if we're going to talk about horticulture, then I got to go back to where I started with horticulture. And I don't know, I'm probably, I'm probably unique. Like the, my story is going to be different from all of your listeners. And that is that my first attempt to grow a garden, pretty much everything died. And I was so upset that I became absolutely obsessed with reading gardening books for about a year. I read more than wow. 100 gardening books in really? a year. And I went to the library. I went to the, the bookstores. And I, I sat in those big comfy chairs in the bookstores and read all their gardening books. And I got to tell you, a lot of these gardening books are copy and pasted from a lot of other gardening books. And as that is that that seems like that would be a real problem. But all that said, uh, there were there are many schools of thought in gardening. And next year, my garden did much better. And then, as each year passed, I got better and better. I eventually did the master gardener program, then the advanced master gardener program, and then I was deep into the world of doing experiments. And I had all these ideas about new things. And I got to tell you, because it matches today's topic, my number one obsession was how to get regular garden plants to grow big and happy without irrigation, using the water from the winter and spring rains. And I tried all kinds of weird things. And then I was in 2001 where I was showing off some of my weird experiments in this space to somebody that they said, oh, what you're doing is permaculture. And that was the first time I heard the word permaculture. So then I had to go read all those books, yep. finding out that things that I thought that I had invented had already been invented long <laughs> before, decades earlier. You and I have something in common here, because when I discovered permaculture, it was like, wow. There's something I can actually call the way that I think. Yes, the word right? is so sweet. Yes. I Before that, I called I, what I was doing a full farm ecosystem where systems feed systems. Makes sense. Perma, permaculture is so much shorter. <laughs> <laughs> now, when people ask me, what is permaculture? Now, I'm, I'm very curious to hear what your definition is. But first, mine is a more symbiotic relationship with nature so I can be even lazier. That's, oh, I love that. That's mine. That's what, yeah. What's yours? What's yours? The art and science of working with nature. That's good. I like that. I like yeah, that. Go ahead. Use it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
So um, in 2005, I attended my very first PDC. Uh-huh. And in that PDC, we built a Hugo culture. It was, uh, in hindsight, the world's most pathetic and stupid Hugo culture. But nonetheless, we built one and we talked about it and why we were doing it. And it was like the answer to all of my research for the past couple of decades. So it's so now I'm bonkers about hugel culture. So I go to the internet and say, internet, teach me all about hugel culture. And there was nothing. Really? And so I wrote the first article about hugel culture. And then I met the mighty, the glorious, the amazing Sepp Holzer, uh -huh. who has taken hugel culture to the extremes. And he taught me so much. Of course, his way of teaching is to tell me how I'm stupid and I'm doing it wrong. He is, he is so advanced. He's so glorious. I'm, I, I can understand that everything that all is, however, I do want to tell a sepulcher story. So shortly after I met him, he was talking about how all of his hugel culture beds are all straight lines and parallel, and they're all contrary to the way the wind naturally blows, so like the dominant wind direction. He'll make them all perpendicular to that. So the wind doesn't get down between the hugel cultures. Oh. Okay. And so I then presented to them with the help of a translator, because he doesn't speak a lick of English and I don't speak a lick of German. Okay. But I made a drawing on a chalkboard and I basically had this idea of what if instead of perpendicular to the way the wind generally blows what if the culture beds went generally downhill but in a wavy shape and it was like interlocking wavy shapes then any cold air would just go down between the hugel culture beds uh-huh and then uh, the way we get frost pockets yep and then no matter what direction the wind is blowing it can't get between the hugel culture beds now <clears throat> He said what he says to almost anything anybody says. <laughs> the only English word he has ever learned, catastrophe. Oh. My understanding is the German version is katastrophen. And oh, so well, later he would not even bother with English. He would just always say katastrophen. But the hilarious thing is that later he came out with this permaculture book, which is a brilliant book. If anybody's got two acres or more, this is and you're only going to read one permaculture book. This is the book to read. And in it, it's interlocking wavy shapes. <laughs> so I, I feel validated. Yeah. <laughs> now, no catastrophe here. He is, he is an odd duck and, and a kind of a cranky dude, but he is so Brilliant. I yeah. hereby give him license to be cranky. <laughs> there, there you go. So you came up with this word. You didn't create the word, but you've brought it into this conversation called Hugel culture. That's H U with two dots above the U. G E L K U L T U R E. What is it? First of all, whenever I type it out, I don't know how to make the dots over the U. So I always leave it out. Uh -huh. And then I never put the E on the end because somehow when I first learned the word, it didn't have an E on the end. Uh, okay. So I'm thinking like it has to do with this German roots. Okay. When I, and I have presented about Hugo culture 
I don't know, 50 times. And the quick description is it is soil on wood. Mm-hmm. Now, the word was originally in German, which means hill culture. So it's talking about a raised bed, effectively. Okay. But when it came to America, and the first instance that I've ever seen of it is in Gaia's Garden, uh, Toby, the book Toby's Gaia's book. Garden by Toby Hemingway. Mm-hmm. Rest in peace. Uh, and that's the first time I've been able to find it printed anywhere. That's the earliest reference I've been able to find. It. <clears throat> and so my understanding from doing as much research as I could is that when the word came here, we went with the thing about the wood, like it's going to have wood in it, whereas in German, it it doesn't have wood in it. Although when Sepp Holzer builds his, it does have wood in it. Oh, interesting. um, uh, People who know German, whenever we bring it up, they always want to point out that it just means hill culture. Thank you. Thank you for pointing that out. Yes, I knew that. Uh, okay okay so somehow the americanization of it or perhaps the sepification of it if we can use that as a word for sepulter we just uh, did uh, yes uh, somehow (laughs) has wood in it but it is a raised bed i can fill four hours talking about things that people do and they point at it and say hugel culture and i slap my forehead and as, oh, please don't call that hookah culture. That's a whole different thing you're doing there. Mm-hmm. Call it something else, please. So there's, I, I don't know, there's, when it comes to the recipes, basically soil on wood, you're going to stack it very steep. In fact, if you stack it too shallow, so it ends up being like a, a shallow slopes on the sides. Oh, Sepp Holzer, I've seen him get so angry at people doing that. He and, and he, if you want to see somebody be angry, watch them be angry in German. That <laughs> is the best. That's why wow, that is some anger. So when you say on a slope, tell me how you're building this bed, because I always just put wood in the bottom, whether it's wood chips or wood logs or and you cover it with soil and let it go to work. OK, let's talk a moment about why you don't want to put wood chips inside of a hookah culture. But why wood chips are delightful as a mulch on the outside of a hugel culture. All right. And this is going to have to do with nitrogen and mobilization. So if you have lovely soil and then you mix in, let's say you just mixed in a bunch of wood chips. Yep. The amount of surface area of this high carbon wood chip to your delightful soil is going to be uh, very high. high. And nitrogen has this desire, which is, of course, not an appropriate word to apply to just some element, but I'm going to use it anyway. It likes to do the compost dance like 20 times more than the feed the plants dance. So this is called nitrogen immobilization. The nitrogen gets locked up with all those carbons instead of feeding your plants. And so your plants will turn yellow, like I'm not getting nitrogen, I'm dying. On the other hand, if you have a big log sitting in that same soil instead of wood chips Uh the amount of total surface area is much less and the nitrogen immobilization is only happening within half an inch or so of that log but the rest of the soil is not affected by nitrogen immobilization so then when your plant puts its roots down 
and it gets close to the log, it finds a source of a lot of water and other nutrients, not nitrogen. And the roots that go away from the log find lots of nitrogen. So the plant is happy. So, uh, that makes perfect sense. <laughs> so it's a, that's a thing I see a lot of people do. They put wood chips inside of their hugel culture and then they're like why does it all my plants are so sad this hugel culture is dumb and that's where i want to say please don't call that hugel culture <laughs> call it something else now on the other hand if you put wood chips on the outside as a mulch that works out great yeah, perfect um if a little weed seed comes down and lands there and tries to get started there's going to be so much carbon locking up all the nitrogen, the weed seed has a really hard time getting started and mm -hmm. will most likely give up. Whereas your plants that you planted intentionally or the seeds that you planted intentionally under the mulch, they're going to go right into some beautiful gardener soil, which actually, because of course we're talking about a no-dig technique, right? And, and it's going to become richer and richer as the years pass, as that wood rots it is releasing the nitrogen that it previously immobilized. Mm -hmm. And because it has a very high cation exchange capacity, there's all these other nutrients that just built up in the wood along with storing all of that water from last fall, winter, and spring. The, the, the soil just gets better and better with every passing year. Now, wow. a moment ago, you talked about slope. And I think most gardeners, when you're talking about making a raised bed, they want to put it in a box or make some kind of perimeter, but something that's going to be freestanding like that and with steep sides, how do you do that? And so I want to state that while most people build hugel cultures that are about three feet tall, I wish to suggest that people build hugel cultures seven feet tall. Wow. Or or taller and i can get into why but first the first thing people have struggled with is the idea of it having steep sides like almost vertical and then they're thinking like wait a minute if i went out there with a bunch of sand i wouldn't be able to get it nearly that tall it'll all the it's called the angle of repose and even so, dirt is, is hard to like how do you get it to, how do you do that the moment it gets hit with water, it'll just turn into a big mud puddle, which is perfectly horizontal. <laughs> exactly. So, so it's like, how will we do that? In order for me to explain it, you, sir, are made of mostly water and some other goo. Yep. And yet you have a skeleton that makes you have this more upright appearance. Uh... Yeah, you see exactly where I'm going. And this, so we're going to basically all this wood is going to add it's in, in the world of soil science engineering, then it's going to be adding this level of engineering. So there's these fascinating examples where engineers will take sand and then they'll lay stuff like, oh, paper towels. They'll take sheets of paper towels and they'll do a layer of sand, like an inch of sand, and then lay down a paper towel and an inch of sand. And they'll make a stack two feet tall with vertical sides. And so this will stand and they'll hose it down and it's still standing. And this is, this is substrate engineering. 
And it's like, so we're going to do the same thing, but our bones are going to be wood. Mm -hmm. and so we're going to add all this wood in. Then we're going to plant all kinds of things with all kinds of roots, including some shrubs and trees, which are going to replace that dying and decaying wood in time with living roots. And I don't know what your recipe is for building soil, but my recipe is going to be to add a lot of decaying matter plus living roots yep. plus a nice blob of good gardener soil. Yeah. And then the earthworms will do their magic from there. But the transitioning from the rotting wood and the rotting mulches on the outside layer, mm -hmm. to the living roots, and you'll start it off possibly with something really webby, like grass roots. And then you'll replace all the grasses with, like, I, I love uh, comfrey and rhubarb. And yep. you'll do a bunch of spike-rooted things, maybe some alfalfa, lupins. Uh, nitrogen fixers are always good to start with your first year. And then I'm going to move into things that are going to be like, I'll plant apple trees from seed because nice. an apple tree from seed has a tap root. Yeah. And now I'm going to say a thing. I, I, if you disagree with me, if you disagree with me, I will respectfully treat you to a one hour lecture about this, <laughs> which we'll get through. But I'm going to say, Every time you transplant, you lose the taproot. I've had this debate, I would say, 60 times with people that run nurseries. And, and I'll say, when you transplant and then you get a chance to look at the roots of this taprooted plant later, instead of there being one taproot, there will be four. And they really? say, that is exactly what I see. That is exactly my uh -huh. observation. Mm -hmm. And I choose to call those tap roots <laughs> and a plural. Those are the tap roots. They're, see, it's better. There's four, but actually they don't go nearly as deep as one. When one, you have one yeah. tap root. and that one tap root adds structural integrity to your hugel culture. And then of course, there's all kinds of, when you plant trees, there's all kinds of different roots, but there are many species that have a tap root and apple is one. And some people say apples don't have a taproot. And I wish to add to that, their sample set is purely transplanted apple trees, that they have never seen oh. an apple tree started from seed. That's why they say that. <clears throat> apple trees have a taproot if you start them from seed. And I do that. That's me, though. Nice. I, I think... I'm in the minority. Very few people do it. And people will say something about you can't get an edible apple. And I want to counter that by saying- Oh, sure like, you can. It is. About 80% of the time, it's 20% of the time, it's what you end up with a kind of an apple, which we refer to as a spitter. I think that story tells itself. Yeah. <laughs> and then 80% of the time you get an apple that is somewhere between acceptable and delightful. And yeah. usually the top 20% will be really good for a lot of things and nice size and stuff like that. The stuff that's in between will generally be small and maybe used for one thing. Like it might be a good applesauce apple, but a terrible pie apple. And you're growing apples. And you're I'd... holding the soil together. Yes. And you know what? If you if the apple tree grows up and for whatever reason you don't like it now you can use the frankenstein maneuver known as grafting, grafting. Yeah. yeah and now you can have whatever you want whatever your favorite thing is you can have that now 
But until then, let it go. Let it. And then the other thing is that for the apples that you don't particularly care for, those of us in the permaculture world will sometimes have hogs, which think those varieties of apples are absolutely delightful. And then hogs also have this magic way in the way that they chew up the apples in that they go and they plant the seeds with a fertilizer packet. <laughs> Isn't that cool? All That's how over nature the works. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so now you have thousands of apple trees yeah. and you didn't even have to plant them. All Granted, right. those might be coming off of the apples that you didn't particularly care for. And maybe you'd prefer that those same hogs do it with the apples that you really like. But that's another story for another day. There you go. And so for somebody just getting started, what is the easy way to set up a Hugo culture bed? Because even for me, thinking about putting a seven foot tall bed in place, it's I can wrap my head around it, but that's a big project. Let's start okay. small. All right. All right. Here is my easiest recipe. And, and I think most people, 80% are going to say, I can't do that. But I love the idea of planting the idea in your head yeah. and seeing how it does. And, and while it might not be your first Hugo culture, maybe it'll be your third. And it goes like this. Pretend you're going to make a Hugo culture that is only four feet tall. So you'll probably create a base that's about four feet wide. And so you'll decide where you're going to do it. And you'll lay a bunch of wood on the ground, making sure you have an inch gap between each piece of wood. Lay it horizontally? Yep, horizontally. Okay. All right. Now, I want you to make a path that's four feet wide on either side of your culture bed. And you're going to dig down right there. And you're going to take whatever's there and you're going to plop it on top of that wood. And so this is, and you're just using a shovel. Yeah. And I see your face. I can, the pod people cannot see your face, but I can. And it's, you've already done the math from here. Yeah. Okay. But let me go ahead and finish the story. So Please. once you've put enough dirt or soil or whatever you, whatever have you on your wood so that you can't see the wood anymore, put another layer of wood on. And again, make sure there's a little bit of gaps between the wood and, and dig it. down. Hold on, go the other direction and dig down and put that on top of it. I'm not sure what you mean by the other direction. Well, you said four but, feet on both sides. So I'm thinking four feet, so your bed where you're going to want it is four feet wide. Okay. And then there's a path on one side that's mm -hmm. four feet wide. Yep. And there's a path on the other side that's four feet wide. And so what I'm suggesting is that as you build your hugel culture up, it's going to go wood, soil, wood, soil, wood, soil, until it's four feet tall. In the meantime, next to your hugel culture bed, you're digging down and that's just soil. And by the time you're done, you will have dug down about three feet on each side and you'll have made a pile four feet tall. When you're standing in your new path that is lower than the original path, and uh, you hold a tape measure up, <laughs> it's seven feet tall. It's seven feet tall. Because you went, you went down three and up four. <clears throat> okay, that is a recipe. Yeah. Now, 
I, I feel like I have a hundred things to go with beyond that, but let's just set that aside for just a moment. And let's talk about why seven feet tall. And, and there's a bunch of reasons. One reason is that if it's seven feet tall, then the amount of organic matter on the inside is going to be so significant that three to five years down the road, it'll hold so much water that you won't have to irrigate your garden at all. So that's reason number one. Now, if you do a shorter bed, you're going to, if you get many years down the road, you're still going to have to water it several times per year. Mm -hmm. You'll water it less than you used to with a flat garden, but you won't be able to get away with not watering it. Because if you go on vacation for two weeks and there's a heat wave while you're gone, don't you want to come back to see your garden is even lusher than when you left? Yeah. As opposed to what most people do, which is to pay a neighbor kid. That's the norm. <clears throat> so that's reason one is so you, you release all of your irrigation chores, all of your irrigation chores, all of your fertilization chores. You let all that go you, because it, this, is, this system is going to take care of itself. Okay. Reason number two, wind. I don't know how much wind you have. I have windbreaks called the Rocky Mountains. Yeah. But I have been to places that are out in the prairies where everybody walks with a slant because you're <laughs> you know the because the, the wind is constant. It's just constantly blowing. Yeah. And I know I've been to gardens in Missoula, Montana that are lush and beautiful. And you look around the hillsides and they're covered in trees and it's just like, it's gloriously beautiful. And then I'll go three hours east to Great Falls, Montana, where there's wind and they get the exact same amount of precipitation, but you can look for five miles. Like, oh, look over there, five miles away. I can see a tree, one, one tree. And it's because wind is desiccating and cooling. So as gardeners, at least in Montana, where I am. I was going to say, I was going to say it's cooling in Montana. In Phoenix, Arizona, it's roasting. It's desiccating. That. It's desiccating. And it, when it's that warm, what you want is swales instead of hugelkultur. And that, sir, is a whole nother podcast. <laughs> yes, it is. And, but let's, so hugelkultur. I am in Montana, and I'm going to pretend that a majority of your listeners are in someplace fairly cold, and they're trying to extend their growing season. And, and when they're in the throes of growing season, they also want to have it, they want a variety of things. In fact, one, one way of looking at this is that if you've got a flat garden, chances are that the total amount of sunlight that hits everything is the same yeah. and the ph is the same and the amount of rainfall is the same and everything is homogenous it's all the same and so what i'm trying to do <clears throat> is have diversity so when i add texture to the landscape then i'm going to make it so that the wind only hits the top part of the hugelkultur. The lower part is 
mostly protected from the wind. It's going to end up with a longer growing season because it wasn't cooled as much. It stayed warmer in general. Now mm -hmm. there's going to be parts of the hugel culture that are facing east and parts that are facing west and parts that are facing south, making it very warm through the summer. Yep. And there's going to be parts that are facing north, which are going to be pretty cool during the summer, relatively cool during yeah. the summer. So on the north side, you might plant a lot more lettuces in the middle of summer. But on the south side, you might plant a lot of lettuces in early spring. So you have this diversity you can now work with. Another thing is that the top edges end up being very dry, partly because of the wind, partly because gravity has been pulling that moisture down mm -hmm. to the lower parts. So the lower parts end up being moister, less wind, and of course, getting some water from the higher parts of the hugel culture. So the other thing is that as the rain lands, most of the rain is going to just go straight in, but some of it's going to get pushed out to the sides and end up more towards the lower parts. So we tend to plant the things that can tolerate dryness on the top part of the hugel culture, and then things that are water loving at the bottom. That makes so, a whole lot of sense. So when you start, now, if you do a raised bed that's two feet tall, Mm -hmm. In general, at least here in Montana, you add about two weeks onto either end of the growing season. And if you go seven feet tall, it's more like three or four weeks on either end of the growing season. Now, there's richer and richer stories about how to extend the seasons. We've got one hugel culture here that has a rocket mass heater in it. That's a whole other podcast in itself wow. uh, as, a, as an alternative to a greenhouse. Yeah. Where green, greenhouses typically block at least 30% of the sunlight coming inside, oftentimes more than that. Mm -hmm. But and, and <clears throat> all right. Greg, I have bombarded you with a, incredible a lot of crazy stuff here. Incredible information. I've learned more about Hugo culture in the past 28 minutes than I knew than I've known in my entire life. So thanks. <laughs> In fact, you're inspiring me. We're getting ready to put in a new garden here in Asheville. And it's, oh, I see how I can fit one of those in now. I Part of permaculture is we do permaculture design courses. And everybody's going to do a different design. And if you're going to ask Jeff Lawton what kind of design he's going to use, he's in tropical and subtropical. He does a lot of swales. We all know he's very swale happy. Oh, yes, he is. Um, and then as you talk to each permaculture big, you'll get a different general strategy. Most of them, most of the permaculture designs I've ever seen have no earthworks. And I am a powerful advocate for permaculture having earthworks and saying, uh, do yeah. your earthworks first. First. <clears throat> yeah, because otherwise you end up putting in these beautiful perennials. And it's, now I'm going to go in and put in some ponds and hugel cultures and terraces. And you got to dig all those up. Yeah. And that is just, that is so painful and sad. <laughs> so do I your earthworks. I tell people to spend at least a year on a property before you make any major changes. I let's, Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to take what you just said, because I say the exact same thing, but I'm going to, to twist it completely backwards. You ready? Please. Don't do anything on your property for the first year 
and simultaneously do everything on your property the first year. And there's great wisdom in both paths. Yeah. But I think part of it is, okay, I believe you have four acres. I do. And first of all, you, sir, are not going to be able to not garden. You're going to not be that first year. No, you're not going to be able to do it. Interesting. You should say that we arrived here on April 20th, 2022. The next weekend we were at the nursery. <laughs> See? See? <laughs> okay. If you love gardening, you can't. So think of it this way. If you have four acres, if nothing else, limit yourself to a quarter of an acre the first year. Yeah. Go wild. Do it all. Do everything you think is the best and the most delightful. And on the second year, you can open up that second quarter of an acre and start doing things. And you can dabble with the rest of the property a little bit. But now, years and years ago, I bought 80 acres after being limited to a half an acre. And I was like, oh, finally, I have some space to do some real gardening. And it's like in that first couple of years, it was killing me because part of it is, okay, I got to get compost out to everything on 80 acres. And it's, yeah, you got to let that go, buddy. That's, right? Stop thinking that thought right off. Yeah. In fact, I ended up retiring all composting. And I know that I just heard a hundred thousand of your pod people gasp in terror at the mention of that. But I, it has been my experience that most people get to a certain point in their horticultural careers or horticultural life where they stop composting because all of that compostable material is so useful in so many other things. And it's so much work to bring it together to make that little bit of gardener's gold. I teach a class called non-composting. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> I love the name of it. Because so, um, composting is so dang hard. <laughs> and there's so many things Candy. you can do. Feed it to worms, feed it to chickens, bury it just straight in the ground. There's just, yeah, I hear you. I have, I think it was eight years ago, I made a deck of permaculture playing cards. And one of the cards is called not composting. And it's, and so basically I point out that when you compost, you bring together like a hundred pounds of compostable materials, mm -hmm. and then you end up with five pounds of compost. And it's like, where did the rest of it go? It went up into the atmosphere or possibly into the ground. But yeah. most of it went to the atmosphere. It was nitrogen and carbon. And, it's, and so carbon, we know, when it breaks down far enough, it turns into carbon dioxide and goes in the atmosphere. And 78% of our atmosphere is made of nitrogen, but it's the gaseous form. And it just breaks down to the point that it becomes that gaseous form of nitrogen. Mm -hmm. And so it's, this is the Krebs cycle, right? And so the key is that, and all that valuable carbon and nitrogen, we want that in our soil. Not up in the atmosphere. What is up in the atmosphere? It's out of our reach. We can't bring it back. There's, okay, we can bring it back, but that's another story for another day. We want it in our soil. Okay, the thing is, yeah, not composting. I, I, I'm, and yes, I can talk for four hours about not composting, not and you can too. 
Yeah. I imagine your class is probably at least four hours long. <laughs> so with questions. Yeah, exactly. Okay. We're talking about Hugo culture. I'm sorry. I get excited about these things. I can tell. And I love it. <laughs> when, so you do Hugo culture at Wheaton labs. Yes. I my assume. place. Tell me about what is Wheaton labs? What, am, what are we going to see if we drive up the driveway? Oh, first I want to say the name comes from Nye labs like Nye Laboratory, Bill Nye, the science guy. Oh, nice. And, and a big part of it is because on my previous land, I did so many experiments all the time. I just couldn't stop myself. I was just crazy about experiments. I tell people all the time, I can't help myself. I hear you. Yeah. And so I just, that's all I want to do is experiment all the time. And it turns out there's a lot of other people that want to do this. So, there's, so we have a dozen people here right now and each one of them doing their own flavor of experiments and stuff. Mm -hmm. And we just finished up with an event we called the Permaculture Technology Jamboree that we oh, do nice. once a year. And uh -huh. we build a lot of low-tech things. We do a lot with rocket mass heaters. I think we have the most rocket mass heater-like things of anywhere in the world. And I can talk for about 100 hours about rocket stuff. But we, I think that the, one of the most beautiful things for this year, you're familiar with the Moongate, right? No, look at your face says no, no moon gate. So usually it's done with cement, but we specialize in dry stack and uh, you're familiar with dry stack. Absolutely. Yes. Okay. So we do a lot of dry stack stuff here. So we made a moon gate. We decided that we wanted to make a moon gate with a six and a half foot diameter. So that's going to be a stack of rocks, basically making a rock wall that'll be eight feet tall. Uh-huh with a circle out of the middle of it. So the bottom half is dry stack. The bottom yeah. half of the circle is dry stack, the way that you're used to doing dry stack. Yeah. And the top half is going to have to be an arch, a dry stack arch. And so you end up with this beautiful dry stack wall with a, a six and a half foot diameter circle in the middle. Okay, that's where we want to end up. And we're thinking like, okay, we've never built a moon gate before. So let's build a six foot tall dry stack wall with a two foot diameter hole in it. Mm -hmm. So that was one of the projects that we did at our permaculture technology jamboree this year. The other one that I really like <clears throat> is our version three log picnic table. And, and I am a powerful advocate of green woodworking as well as what I call pure wood woodworking mm -hmm. and that's where you try oh good oh oh you say huh yes you know exactly what that is oh thank god because i love pure wood projects so much and so many people point at it and say that's stupid and right, well for, for for us that don't know what that is what is it's where you wood? build something without any metal fasteners or any glue Oh, nice. And so All right, it used cool. to be knockabout shelves were very common yeah there are some table designs uh, but how we now have some log chairs that we've built that are pure wood. We do it. We do a lot with pure wood here, a lot of stuff and a lot with green wood. And in fact, one of the most popular joinery techniques that we have is where you put a dry peg into a green log. And then as the green log shrinks, it, it pinches onto the, there yep, you go. It pinches onto the, and holds it in place. So there was a tree nearby that got pushed over to make room for a road. 
And first, I got to tell you, I live in forested land. And if we don't take some of these trees out, we're at risk for wildfires. Yeah. So we got it. So anyway, a road was going in and a tree got knocked over. So we took that tree and we cut it up and shaped it and we made a, a picnic table. So there are these 12 foot long logs that have had the top flattened uh-huh. that act as benches for either side. And then some of the smaller stuff from near the top kind of had the same thing done. And that's the top of the bench itself. And we put little saddle joints in on top of it all to stack it all up. And then so the fattest logs are holding up the bench and the next fattest parts are separating the seating area from the top. And so somebody said, you haven't built a picnic table You've just did done a handsome job of stacking wood. <laughs> <laughs> right. And I thought, fair enough. That's a yeah. way of looking at it because we could just take it all apart at any time, but, and then move it. That's yeah. the other thing too, is somebody was saying like, oh, if you sit on the end, those unattached pieces are all going to pop off. And I said, that would be true if it was a picnic table that you bought from the Home Depot and you didn't fasten it all together. But these logs weigh about 150 pounds each. You're going to have to put 500 pounds of weight on the end of it to get that to flip up. This is a giant log. And, and plus they're 12 feet long, whereas your picnic table from the Home Depot is only six feet long. Yeah. So this is, anyway, so, all I'm trying to say is, and that's a gardener's thing. I think permaculture is like when you're a gardener and you get utterly obsessed that after about four years of garden obsession, you end up being an organic gardener. Ah, oh, there's nothing but organic gardening for me. And yep. then you go beyond and beyond. And then next thing you know, you're into permaculture. And then it's like, how does a gardener get energy for their home? Or what kind of home does a gardener build? So to me, it's like all of this stuff about the ultimate gardener, everything. And then if you want to add religion, then you go into biodynamic. <laughs> I personally there stop at permaculture. <laughs> there you go. So if somebody wanted to find out about Wheaton Labs and your courses and that kind of stuff, where do we go? Oh, for stuff about here at my physical location, Go to wheaton-labs.com and, and there's all our events and then people can come by and visit. We have, if people are going to come by and visit, we have this separate program for people who want to live this way all day, every day. We have what we call the permaculture boot camp, nice. And then, and so we've had people like, like there's one guy, he was here for just a few weeks. He said, he's going to come by for a few weeks. And he's been here. And that eight, was 16 years ago. It was eight years ago. <laughs> it was eight years ago. And we had another guy who says, I'm here forever. Like he has liquidated his entire life and he moved here. And, and I thought, oh, a guy like that, he's not going to last two weeks. And he's still here. And that was two and a half years ago. Wow. So we get, so, but the thing is that so many people love to garden and love to build this way and things of that nature so much that they want to do that, just that all day long, every day for the rest of their lives. And granted, we have some people who show up for a week or two or a month or two, 
-hmm. things like that. And that's fine. Be here as long as you like. And that's the permaculture boot camp. And then when people come here for the separate program, which is basically simply coming and renting a cabin, like we have a lot of couples who come and then they'll rent a cabin and then one of them will do their worky job remotely and the other one will join the boot camp full time. But basically we say you can be in the boot camp as much or as little as you like. If you want to just watch the clouds pass, you can. Although I don't know why you would want to be here because our cabins are a little primitive. They are Uh, technically cabins, but they don't exactly. Most of them don't have any plumbing. Uh, (laughs) So it's, it's, I don't know, but a lot of people, we do, a lot of them have enough electricity so you can run a laptop. And so some people do that. And anyway, but we're getting better every year. It's of getting course. more more beautiful every year, more of a gardener's paradise every year. Sounds um, like you have fun with whatever you do. Um, I like to think so. I like to think that the people who come have fun. Some people come and they realize right away that this is not for them. And mm-hmm. other people come for just a bit and then they're here long term. Yeah. And so... I don't know. It depends. We do our best to that's post the, pictures and stuff. Yeah, that's the answer in permaculture. It depends. That is true. That is true. Now, I have a video on YouTube called something, we call it the Turbo Tour, 65 things in nine minutes. So it's 65 interesting little fascinating bits and bobs here. So for example, wow. one of the things is our truly passive greenhouse, which is made with roundwood timber framing. And with a lot of emphasis on good joinery techniques, Mm -hmm. but this experiment worked and it got to 12 below outside and the interior never froze. And that's with no additional heat, not even a fan. And so there's a bunch of greenhouses out there that are documented as passive greenhouses, but they have a giant fan blowing air into the ground 20 feet down Mm -hmm. and to get either warm air to come back or to push warm air down, get cool air to come back, whatever. And it's, that's not passive. That's electric. That is such a giant fan. It dims the lights in the neighborhood whenever it comes on. <laughs> it's so huge. That's a 220 yeah. volt fan. And so it's like, that is a big power draw right there. Ours has no fans, no electricity of any kind. So that's wow. one, one of the 65 things. So that's on YouTube. 65 things you cool things you're doing at uh, Wheaton Labs in nine minutes. 65 things we have done, 65 Ah, projects we have completed. Nice. And since then, we've probably done 20 more, like the log picnic table I just described. So I'm going to shift on you. Okay. And I'd like for you to talk about a time you failed and what you might have learned from that failure. Okay. And I got to say, along those lines, My rule of thumb is try 100 things, two will work out, and you'd never know in advance which two. So that kind of suggests maybe not a 98% failure rate, but a A pretty significant- A 2% success rate. Right. And there might be a lot of things that kind of were like, eh, it it wasn't wasn't what I hoped. Yeah. But okay. When I first arrived on this property- uh, rather than the boot camp, the predecessor to the boot camp was what we called the Gapper program. And 
And so basically we opened our doors, we invited people in and we had different ways of doing everything. And in the end, it just didn't work. It was very expensive for us to do it because I hired a full-time cook and we weren't growing our food yet. So I had to pay for all the food. And, and when we would bring these people in, they were so new at build. Most people had never held a drill before, which is the boot camp does that too. Now, right. most of the people who arrive have never held a drill before and they've never held a hammer. Wow. And so it's, let's get them going. Let's get them started. But now our philosophy set is very different because you asked what was a failure. So the Gapper program, we didn't do it well enough. So we ended up with a lot of tool burn. And I think one of the things that hurt me, like on my insides the most, mm -hmm. is there's so much that needs to be done for all these people to live here. And during the day, it's going to be permaculture. We're going to be gardening. We're going to be doing natural building and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And the odd thing is people would carve more and more time out of the middle of the day to do their laundry or check the internet or, and then once it got to be five o'clock, that was pure recreation time. And so people weren't cleaning up after themselves. Um, and all of our tools were not getting repaired. In fact, um, because tools were seen as free, they, they would oftentimes leave them out in the woods. Oh, my. <clears throat> we ended the Gapper program and then designed the, the permaculture boot camp. And we said, no cook, everybody has to cook for themselves. Uh, we provide food staples, not the most expensive food at the organic grocery. And tool care is a major part. Mm -hmm. And nobody does their laundry in the middle of the day. They have to do that outside of what we call boot time. So the biggest, the, the, I don't know, I just picked this. I'm, they're probably bigger things, but I had to learn. It was a very painful lesson for me. I just thought everybody would be as bonkers about gardening and permaculture as I was. Yeah. But they were like, I will do gardening and natural building if you hold my hand and carry me. Mm. But if you don't carry me, I'm going to throw tools out and break tools and I don't know. I had accidentally created a culture that was not what I had hoped for. And I think it's because I had too much optimism, too much enthusiasm, too much well, gullibility, let's say. I can I contend you're you were doing permaculture there. You implemented some programs, you observed they weren't working, you changed them up or you stopped them and you changed them up and you came up with something new. That's the permaculture design process right there. I think you are right, sir. Yes. Yes. And I was venturing out onto my own and I, I designed the system for people being noble. Mm -hmm. Instead, people prove that they are human. And I, exactly. the next, the next design, because permaculture is about working with nature mm -hmm. instead of against it yeah. and that includes human nature and so human nature you have to design your system to work with human so yes i had a failure and i learned 
and we designed the permaculture boot camp. First of all, we called it the permaculture boot camp. I think if somebody is looking for something where it's like, where can I go to get free food and shelter and I don't really have to do anything? That's not you. They're going to say boot camp. That sounds like they're going to make me work. So I think immediately only one person out of 10 or 15 actually came. I think just by mm -hmm. calling it permaculture boot camp. Yeah. Which is beautiful when because we were having that with the with the gapper program it seems like about one person out of 12 did want to put in to do a lot constantly so outside of the gapper program hours mm -hmm. they were still building things they were still doing things they were still homesteading and permaculture they were still doing it and but that led to resentments which is poison yeah. and it's like the people that were not doing things were resentful of those that did and the people that were doing things were resentful of the people that weren't they were getting the same feed and so it's so that was now the people who show up are all keen to throw their shoulder in no yeah. one's looking to put their feet up and yeah. it's oh this has been just so much better so in your biggest success oh wow ah Oh, oh, I know. I got it. I got it. Tell me. <laughs> Building community. And, and so it's exactly the same, but completely different. And yeah, I'd have to say that permies.com, that, that silly little website that I made so many years ago, and I was very strict. And I said, I only want to talk about the things I want to talk about the way I want to talk about them. And so all kinds of people came to say that they wanted to argue about politics and this, yep. or they wanted to communicate by saying that person's stupid. And I said, yeah. and by being so strict in what I allowed, I thought I would have this teeny tiny little community, but instead I have this enormous community. We get uh, 1.8 million unique people per month. And wow. And 25 million page views. Holy so, shirt, Batman. <laughs> and they are so lovely. They are so lovely. Yeah. It is, it is so good. Granted, yes, a bad egg will come through once in a while, but now the site's gotten so massive. I have 40 volunteers helping me manage the site. Volunteers. Nice. And they take care of all of that. It has been so delicious. And I think we have 300 forums now. And somebody told me that we have the last forums on the internet. And I'm sure that's not true. There's got to be others. But I think a lot of people have given up on Facebook and come here and given mm -hmm. up on Instagram and come here and given up on other websites and come here and and it's just it is a particular flavor and it's not for everybody but it's for people who i don't know like the stuff i like and like the way i want people to talk yeah and so when well, you say greatest success it's a community yeah i have written many books and i think all of them I did with somebody. 
So I didn't. Mm. So like I would have a bunch of articles written and my first printed book, this guy said, I will help you to massage this gob of articles into a book. Mm -hmm. And, uh, and we did, and I like my book, but I have great bias, but we've sold. I, my understanding is that 98% of books never sell more than 5,000 copies. Oh, I was going to say 100 copies, but okay. And so I think we're somewhere for that first book. I think we're coming up on the 40,000 mark. Congratulations. And, uh, thank you. Thank you. So it's, and it's the community. So right? you're saying, what is my greatest success? This community that helps me at any given moment, I think there's about a hundred people helping me to do things. So you guys talked to one of my assistants to set up this podcast and I'm sure they were lovely and delightful. These people, yep. I don't know how it is, but I seem to attract lovely and delightful people. And so it's very lovely and delightful all the time. Awesome. And all right. Gardeners. There's something to be said about what kind of person is a gardener. Okay. What's your big why? Why are you doing this? Okay. Years ago, there used to be a thing called, I'm, I, I suspect that you, you're familiar with this, but, but some of your pod people may have never heard of this. A, we call it a newspaper. <laughs> it came once a day. Yep. You'd race out and grab it. First, you have to read the comics. <laughs> yep. We still get the Sunday paper so that Heidi can have the comics. Then eventually you make your way to the front page where there's depressing stuff. Yeah. And I think when most people read it, then they become angry and they say, they ought to do the thing I'm thinking of. I'm not going to say anything, but they ought to do that. That should be obvious. They ought to. Now I'm going to be angry if they don't. I think that's what most people do. That's least, that seems like what I've learned. Uh -huh. And and I made the mistake of thinking, what can I do? That's Which, a mistake. Hold on. That's a mistake. Oh, yeah. Because you start doing that and another newspaper arrives the next day with whole different stuff. Mm. And you didn't do all the things that you thought about doing. Then and then the next and then there's is this is gonna make you a very sick and sad person. Eventually I had to stop getting the newspaper because it was just bad for my mental health. Mm. But all of these things of what I could do were still there. And I don't I perhaps you've been down the exact same path I've been down because of what you're doing. But the more I thought about all of these things, to me, the solution to almost everything is gardening and homesteading, or at least big gardening. And, and if everybody did, then that would solve this problem. And, and the only reason more people aren't doing it is because, and so all I got to do is solve that, and then they can get to deed, and then, then they can... And then that solves all the world's problems. When, and then, I, okay, I read the newspaper when I was quite young. And then mm -hmm. a little later, I found myself working at the Northwest Power Planning Council. And so this is the government agency that regulates all the ways that power are made for 
Washington, Oregon, Idaho, and Western Montana. Mm-hmm. And, and energy needs would grow by several percent every year. And they had to figure out what are they going to do to produce the energy for the next 5, 10, 20 years. And so they had plans for all of that. And they had organizations and businesses that they would work with to meet those needs. I worked as the lowly librarian. I think I was 21 at the time. Wow. And so I would just catalog the stuff that would come in, but I would have to read it in order to understand how to catalog it so it could be put into the library. Mm -hmm. And so I learned a lot. And there was a joke around the office about conservation because the Northwest Power Planning Council did mountains of work to educate the public on conservation. Because if people could actually use less electricity, that could save from building another nuclear power plant. Power plant, yep. So nuclear or coal, which is actually worse than nuclear, but okay. The thing is that all of these things were awful. But the joke is people just don't do it. No matter how much you tell them about ways that they can save money and energy, they just don't. So that stuck in me. And that was hard. That burned as much as those newspapers did. And yeah, so I, I have this theory I want to throw out here just to plant a seed with you. It goes like this. People change for two reasons. 99% of the time they change because they get hit by a Mack truck. <laughs> One Mack truck could be a non-literal Mack truck. Exactly. Yes. Get run over by a bus or break your arm or, 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 or. Survive something. Yeah. 1% of the time people change because they choose to change. Logic and reason. Exactly. So how do we get people? And it sounds like this is where you're going. How do we get people to say, oh, there's something here that needs to change. How do we change without getting, having a massive food system failure? And the answer to that question is, for example, the rocket mass heater, I think is a great example. Mm-hmm. Here in Montana, the average Montanan spends about $2,000 a year on heat. Wow. But with a rocket mass heater, it would be closer to $15 a year. Wow. And, and so that's a great financial motivation. Yeah. And so now the other thing is that let's take a quick look at electric heat for just baseboard electric heat. The carbon footprint for the average Montanan using baseboard electric heat is 29.4 tons. A rocket mass heater has a carbon footprint. Hold on, hold on, hold on. Of 29.4 pounds. You're not too far, actually. Uh, (laughs) 0.4 tons. Wow. And I mean, like carbon footprint, not everybody believes that we should be concerned about carbon footprint. And that's fine. I endorse them choosing to not believe it. And and that's fine. It is an invisible thing. You can't like point at it and say, look, there it goes. Carbon footprint stuff. See, it's behind that tree. You can't do that. It's it's an invisible thing. And so that's I respect if people are like, I don't think that's true. That's fine. That's fine. Yeah. There's a lot of other things, but it's in order to convince people to change I want to put together a list of things that are going to either add luxury to your life and or save you a lot of money. 
And that's what that first book of mine is about. What's, uh, the, the, what's the name of the book? Building a Better World in Your Backyard Instead of Being Angry at Bad Guys. Really? Yes. Love it. I'll get you a copy if you want. No problem. The thing is that everything in the book is about, and it all starts with, and I write about it a little bit different. There was a brilliant book written, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago called As the World Burns, 50 Things You Can Do to Stay in Denial. And in the book, it mentions permaculture, but basically, yeah, and he's right. I see you writing this down. I got to write that one down. Right. And so basically what the guy points out is, is that the author, Derek Jensen, a permaculture guy, the thing he points out is that when you watch that movie by that former vice president, and why is his name escaping me at the moment? Al Gore. And in his movie, he gives some things you can do at the end. And so the author says, let's suppose every American in the United States did all of those things, did all the things that he suggested. It would reduce the carbon footprint of the United States by 22%. However, our carbon footprint is growing by 2% a year. So in 11 years, it'll we'll be back itself. where we started. Yeah. So I wanted to put this information out there. And a lot of it, I'm thinking about that time at the Northwest Power Planning Council. And I want to put out a recipe book that's such that everything, it's not about sacrifice, which is what most stuff is about. Right. It's about adding luxury and coin to your pocket. And so I want to say that if everybody in the United States did, I don't know, a quarter of the stuff in my book, mm -hmm. we would not only solve most global problems, but we would actually be entering into an era of far greater health. I think it might even eliminate 90% of cancer, but very speculative on my part. Yeah. Uh, it could turn out to be that I'm totally crazy. Well, but at we? the very least, uh, <laughs> we, by definition, you and I are weirdos because we are not the norm. Yeah. And, and I'm happy to be not the norm, but at the same time, I wish to show the norm how happy I am with my rocket mass heaters and gardens. And so we're bringing, we're bringing you back to talk about rocket mass heaters. Cause that <laughs> actually was one of the topics that had been pitched and I want to learn all about them, but not today. <laughs> yeah, oh, so fair enough. Fair enough. You, you've mentioned a couple of books and I still want to pitch this question out to you. And uh, do you have a book you could recommend for our readers? You touched on a Hugo culture one early on, but you didn't give I the would say, name of it. Okay. So I'm a little book obsessive and, and I think it would be unfair for me to just simply suggest my books. And so I'm going to step away from that. And I'm going to say, if, if, and I'm and because it's urban farming, I'm going to say, okay, if you're keen on gardening in an urban environment, I'm going to say the number one book that I want to suggest is Gaia's Garden by Toby Hammonway. The very book I mentioned earlier, Toby was a great friend. I really like Toby and his book is wonderful. And it really does a great job of painting so many permaculture pictures in a smaller plot. Yeah. Now, if you'd forgive me, 
if I mentioned one more, and that is that is. I, I just recently read, and I and and it's 10 years old now, and I feel so bad that I didn't read it sooner because it's so good. And that's Restoration Agriculture by Mark Shepard. And the reason why I like it, even though now it's called Restoration Agriculture, so it sounds that's gonna that sounds like acres are involved, and yeah, this maybe. podcast is a bit urban, but it does have the word farm in it. So it's okay. He does a beautiful job of tying in all the values from the greats of permaculture and then putting on a modernizing sauce. He has worked as a commodity farmer, an organic an organic commodity farmer. And so he was presenting once about the techniques that he uses, which are permaculture. Yeah. Somebody at the presentation said, yeah, but you can't feed the world. And this book is basically the response. Not only is the answer, oh, I oh, yes, we can the world, but let's also point out how you, sir, are not. Assuming that you're what you're farming is conventional. You're growing yeah. corn or soy or wheat. And let's point out how you are not feeding, feeding the people. Yep. And you're poisoning people. You're it's it is so thoroughly researched, so well done. And it's like in all of my permaculture endeavors, I have drifted away from hyper-focusing on planting perennial edibles and growing annuals like three sisters. And now it's, what was I thinking growing three sisters? I should be planting more hazelnuts, more grapes, more apples. I should be planting. I should be doing, yeah, there, there it is. Urban farm. Yes. Yes. Fruit tree program. Yes. And it's, and then do it again in polycultures and, I, what have I been doing? I've been, oh, I have been seduced by the dark side. (laughs) And I just feel like it does this restoration agriculture by Mark Shepard does a great job of, I don't know, uh, redirecting me, like giving me the direction I had 15 years ago. And it's a rebirth. I feel reborn in permaculture having read that. So of course, I want everybody to enjoy the joy that I felt reading the book. Yeah, nice. And we feel that joy just in your voice. That's awesome. And if you had one piece of advice for our listeners, what would it be? Live large. I'm sorry. I, I feel like nothing to be sorry about. So many people want you and me and everybody else to live a small, sad, pathetic life. You, they want conformity. They want everybody to be gray. They want everybody to be nobody. And, and I just want to, I just, my one piece of advice is large. And if you do, if you live large, you can verify for this for me. For every supporter you get, you'll have 20 people that for their very own good reasons need to suppress you. Does that sound about mm-hmm. right? Maybe not 20, but yeah, there are people out there that are like, eh, that's whatever. Exactly. Step around, keep going. Live large. Live, have joy. Go out there and do big things. Be proud of what you've made. Look at the thing. Look at this hogo culture. I made it nine feet tall. Sure, the guy (laughs) on the podcast said seven, but I did nine. Nine. Nice. 
So it's nice. Like, uh, well, and I, I love what Wes Jackson said. He said, if you're not planning out a hundred years, you're not thinking big enough. I think there is a great deal of truth to that. Yeah. And at the same time, if you want to plan out a week and plan out a one year, that's delightful also. Yep. And, and if you want to change your mind, oh, that's a big thing in permaculture. Don't get married to your permaculture maps. That right. is that permaculture map is your ideas at that moment. And so be prepared to make a new piece of paper that you tape over the old piece and, yeah. and make a whole new map whenever you feel like it. And if you go out and you're like, I was going to build a pond there, but I dug down and it's a bunch of cracked bedrock and I'm not going to be able to seal the pond. Build your pond someplace else. Change your go. map. Change yeah. it. Don't try to say, I have to build a pond here because that's what's in the map. Don't get married to your map. Yeah. And, and in fact, as an artist, aren't you going to go out and you're going to like learn about your land and you start doing your earthworks and you're going to learn all kinds of things about your land that you never knew yeah. and then go with that. Develop a symbiotic relationship with what you discovered as opposed to marrying the map of what you designed before you could see underground. Yeah. Perfect. Perfect. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Paul. Thanks for having me, Greg. This has been fun. I love infecting people's brains with my crazy ideas. Right. It's been an outrageously fun conversation. So thank you. Thank you for that. Huh, thanks, Greg. So how can we find you? I would say the best place is permies.com. Okay. And if you go onto the forums and you ask a question there and you don't get a fantastic answer within 48 hours, we have a place where you can post and exercise what we call the 48 hour rule. Really? And, and then what we will do is either it'll be me or we will bring in an expert to come in and answer your question. Now, sometimes we have said, we don't understand your question. question. <laughs> you got to rephrase. You got to throw us a bone here. We get a lot but of those. We have brought in all sorts of experts from all over the world to come and answer questions. And oftentimes it's me, but a lot of times it's other experts yeah. and we will do it. But usually if you post a question or bring up a topic, you'll find that a it's been discussed 15 times before, and you'll immediately get links to those uh, conversations. Nice. Um, we've got great algorithms for that kind of thing. Um, but if it is new and unique, usually you'll get like 20 responses within a day. And, but if you don't exercise the 48 hour rule, we will talk to you about everything. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. Once again, that's permies.com. Yes. You can also find show notes from today's podcast at urbanfarm.org forward slash Wheaton Labs. Nice. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams.